Good morning, gents. It's so good to see you here. It's good to be together on uh, what is almost the Lord's Day. This is our, our warm-up for the Lord's Day. I guess we could celebrate a Jewish Sabbath today. That's what we'll do. I want to have you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2. And while you're finding that, I want to tell you a little, uh, little family tree story, I guess you could call it. In 1871, in Rock Creek, Ohio, was born a man by the name of Lewis, Lewis Sperry Schaefer. In 1921, Schaefer became the pastor of First Congregational Church of Dallas, Texas. By that time, seminaries in America had essentially all turned liberal, and so Schaefer had a vision for a simple seminary that would very simply and at a high level teach men how to interpret scripture by observing the text, how to draw theological implications from the scripture, teaching men to preach the word of God in verse-by-verse manner, true expository preaching. This was something that was barely done at all in this time, and he began to break that ground. And so in 1924, he founded a little tiny school called the Evangelical Theological College. Ultimately, it would become Dallas Theological Seminary. In 1937, a 22-year-old young man named J. Dwight Pentecost became the 100th student at Dallas Seminary. He ultimately earned a master's degree and a doctorate from the institution. From 1958 to 1976, Dr. Pentecost pastored Grace Bible Church of Dallas, Texas. And from 1955 to 2014, a span of almost 60 years, he was professor of Bible exposition at at Dallas. In the 1970s, A young, fairly new believer named Tom Nelson, who had been headed toward the NFL as a quarterback until an injury ended his career and the Lord saved him, Tom began his academic career at Dallas Theological Seminary, the most influential man in his life, J. Dwight Pentecost. After a number of years as an associate pastor, Tom Nelson became the senior teaching pastor of Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas. He's a profoundly gifted Bible teacher, still preaching today, who preaches simple, elegant, verse-by-verse sermons, and he does it all from memory. In 1990, a newlywed couple came to Denton Bible Church where the first time in their lives they sat under expository preaching under Tom Nelson week after week after week for a number of years, and it changed their lives, changed the trajectory of their lives. And that young couple was myself and my wife, Sylvia. We both knew we would never be the same again after listening to Tom and sitting under him Sunday morning, Sunday night. I was already studying the Bible extensively on my own. I had been frustrated at our previous pastor who clearly did not study the Bible on his own. Ultimately, after a number of years of being discipled under Tom's tutelage, I went to his house one morning and had a conversation which changed my life. And first of all, he was a man who lived what he believed. He preached extensively on integrity and things like being on time. And I was supposed to be at his house at 9 a.m. I was there at at 8.55, and he wasn't there yet. 8.58, he wasn't there yet. 8.59, I'm smiling. I'm going to nail this guy because he doesn't have integrity. I hear this, 
coming around the corner, and it's Tom in his truck, and he pulls into his driveway, almost slams into his own garage, gets out of the car and go, nine o'clock, I'm here. <clears throat> and we sat down and talked. And I'll never forget that conversation for two reasons. The first one is because he was sitting in an old rocking chair that fell apart to a thousand pieces while he was sitting in it. <laughs> Big giant fo football player guy. And the second reason is, is that in that conversation in the course of an hour and a half, it confirmed to me that I was indeed called to the gospel ministry. That's my spiritual heritage. And I go all, all the way back to Lewis Berry Schaefer teaching J. Dwight Pentecost, teaching Tommy Nelson, and changing my life. This is exactly the dynamic that the Apostle Paul is describing in 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This describes a four-generation impact of the Apostle Paul's ministry and it's meant to be an exponential influence. It's absolutely exponential. And this, of course, continues today. The Apostle Paul is unique in that we're still being influenced by him, even at this moment, aren't we? But his influence continues and continues. That the clear implication of this text is that Paul expects the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God, to be expounded, to be expanded, to be exponential, and that it penetrates the entire church. Now, this text is so useful for us because it really serves a double purpose. First of all, it provides the model for the training of qualified men of God, up to and including training for full-time gospel ministry. And this is the model that a very few men teach many men who will in turn feed the entire church of Jesus Christ around the world. I had one conversation with Tommy Nelson that changed my life. I'm standing before you today with dozens of you hearing the impact of his teaching in my life, which ultimately led me as well to the Master's Seminary. And so first purpose here, this is the model for training for gospel ministry. When somebody says, well, I, I've been called to the ministry, my first question is, who would affirm that? Who would say, I trained you? And if somebody says, well, I just woke up in the middle of the night and, and I, I, I heard God saying, you are now an apostle of God. That wasn't God. That was bad pizza or something. That, that was not God. You always should be able to, to track the lineage spiritually of men in the church who serve Christ full time or, or as ministers of the gospel at various levels. And so we have this wonderful model here that for many seminaries in, in the past decades, this has been their model, and rightly so. But there's a second purpose that it's, that's broader. The second purpose is, is that this little text provides the expectation that all men of the church at some level are to be equipped, every single one of you. One pastor wrote this, quote, Paul leaves no room for opting out of this transmittal of truth for lack of qualifications. What he means is, is that there aren't just a certain select group of men who ought to be trained, who ought to be qualified, who ought to know the gospel, who ought to know the word of God. 
This is all men. All the men of the church are to be seeking knowledge, seeking to grow in their walk with the Lord. Now, this does bring up an interesting issue. I've, I've had the opportunity over the years to look at and interact with and familiarize myself with a variety of men's ministries in different local churches, and many of them serve wonderful purposes. And, and this is purely anecdotal, but from my experience, I've noticed a trend. And that trend is a tendency for men's ministries, and the same goes for women's ministries, frankly, to really fall back on the old saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That the ultimate point of discipleship is to live a Christian life to the fullest, to have a better life, to enjoy the the fruit of walking with the Lord. And this is all well and good, but ultimately that can be a, a worldly and a selfish reason for a focus of a men's ministry or any ministry. Is that the ultimate purpose for you to grow spiritually, to enjoy the fruit of obedience? I would say no, it's not. Ultimately, that can't be the highest purpose, to to give you meaning in your life or to give you a better life. That's the result. That's not the purpose. The first and primary purpose of growing spiritually is to glorify God, to give him glory by your obedience, to give him glory by the wonder and the joy of the relationship that you enjoy with him. And so we bend to that primary purpose. Is the point of reading the scriptures for us to learn? That's a secondary point. The first point is that when we read the words of God, he is honored and glorified. But under that heading of glorifying God, perhaps a subcategory which still glorifies God and and isn't the purpose of just making your life better, the purpose of discipleship is maybe something you haven't thought about. The purpose of discipleship, and that's our topic for this morning, is the protection and the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Under the heading of the glory of God, the purpose of discipleship is the protection and the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to take the rest of our time together to prove that to you. We won't even get back to that point till the end. So I'll give you all the proof first, and then we'll come back to that. To find this out, you simply really have to look at the larger context of 1 Timothy 2, Verse 2, there in verse 1, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You then, same word that we would call therefore, it's based on what was just said. And so what was just said back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, Paul is remembering Timothy's spiritual heritage, how he came to faith early in life and had been gifted by the Holy Spirit in the teaching and preaching of the word of God. And here comes Paul's charge to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Did you catch all these? 
phrases. Verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony. Verse 8, suffer for the gospel. Verses 9 and 10, an encapsulated gospel presentation in two verses. Verse 11, Paul is called to the gospel ministry. Verse 11, Paul suffers for the gospel. Verse 12, Paul guards what's been entrusted to him. Verse 14, Timothy is to guard what's been entrusted. And that is the gospel. And so how is Timothy to guard the gospel, to protect the gospel? How is he to do that? By exponential discipleship. That's how you do it, which will in turn promote the gospel, further the gospel, expands the kingdom, which does what? Glorifies God. Back to the ultimate purpose of discipleship. Now, you may all believe that in theory, and you may, you may say, yeah, I, I, I believe that. What about actually being in the trenches of discipleship, of having truth poured into you and pouring truth into others, and, and doing so in a way that isn't necessarily organized, but even just organic? When was the last time that you went to a brother and said, I'm having these two issues in my life. I need you to hold me accountable, A, by praying, and B, by killing me if I'd sin in this way ever again. Or going to a brother and saying, I have noticed this huge area of weakness in your life. Could I get together with you and read scripture with you? Could I help you? Could I come alongside? Could I put my arm around you? Could I put you in a headlock if necessary? Can I do whatever it takes to help you? I'd like to focus now just on chapter 2, verse 2. And I want to show you five focal points of discipleship. And this will be for the protection and promotion of the gospel. These are going to be one word, very obvious focal points, but it, it provides really a prioritized list of what discipleship is all about. One word for each focal point. The first one will seem the most obvious. The first focal point, Bible. Bible. Paul says, what you have heard from me. I won't take a lot of time to explain the, the steps in between here, but I'm just going to go ahead and make the logical leap forward that ultimately what Timothy heard from Paul is recorded in books like Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and so forth. This doesn't mean that every word Paul ever spoke was divinely inspired, but the clear implication here is that Paul has given Timothy divine information and he expects Timothy to pay attention to this is information that we now have in written form. This is the Word of God. Now, I want to just drive this point home to you because it may seem obvious, but I never want it to, to become mundane. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. And in Deuteronomy 32, we come to the last words of Moses to the people of Israel before they cross the Jordan River to receive the land of Canaan. We go to kind of near the end of the chapter. They're finally going to have a land as a nation. And his focus now, Moses, in his final words, he becomes laser beam focused on the word of God. Moses has recited the words of a song for all the people to remember. It's a song of warning to follow the Lord, to follow his words. And because that song is now in scripture, it is inspired. And after reciting this song to Israel, Moses makes a declaration Look with me at Deuteronomy 32, verse 45. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. 
For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. He's crying out to Israel here. This is a, this is a conclusive statement. Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today. He said, it is no empty word for you. It's not vain. It's not idle. It's not pointless. It's not a devotional. He says, it is your life. And this is not just a statement of, well, everybody should read their Bibles more and apply it to their lives. This is not that. This is, by the word of God, you will live, or by the word of God, you will die. It's a do or die statement. The word stands as a judge over the one who would reject the word of God. You know that the word of God will have the last word over the lost? We like to talk about these two verses in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we like to talk about verse 12, that it's, and it's true, the word of God is a, is a two-edged sword, and it helps us in our walk with the Lord. But the fact is, the context is that the word of God is the judge of all who would reject it. Because verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God will have the last word over the lost. The unsaved rebel will not only have the books of his sins opened, Revelation 20 says this, but his sins will be compared to the open book of the standard of the holiness of God as revealed in Scripture. That the lost person did, in fact, put other gods before the true God. The lost person did, in fact, make images of false gods out of money or selfishness or power or lust. That the lost person did pretend to be a believer and therefore took God's name in vain. That the lost person did refuse to worship God and enter into the Sabbath rest of Christ. Hebrews 4. That the lost person did not from a pure heart honor his father and his mother. He did murder others by having wicked, violent thoughts. He did commit adultery in every form of sexual sin, even in his mind. He did bear false witness and use dishonesty to elevate himself. He did believe he was more deserving of what others have and coveted what was not his. Your life will be measured by the standard given in the word of God. And you will be found lacking if you're not in Christ. And for everyone who is in Christ, who has come to the cross to find forgiveness and to be credited with the very perfect life of Christ, to be credited with the death of Christ, for the propitiation of sins, for you, the word of God won't be the basis for your judgment. That fell on Christ instead of on you. But the word still reveals and cuts and exposes. Why? Because the word of God demands, absolutely demands to be the sole authority in your life. There is no other spiritual authority. We search the scriptures for answers, not to find a proof text that lines up with your opinion. You search the scriptures to not be caught in your sin over and over again. Let me give you a little challenge here. The Israelites were expected to obey the law of God. How many of them owned a copy of it? None of them did. How often did they hear it? 
Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 13 says once every seven years. How much more should you who own a Bible, hear sermons twice on Sundays and once a month on Saturdays, be expected to obey the word? Could I say this also? We're to stop testing our behavior, testing our thoughts against our consciences. You only test it against the word of God because your conscience will fool you. Your, your conscience is useful, but only to a point. On the one hand, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. But he knows there's a limit to his conscience. It's, it's, it's all he can think of. But you can't think outside your own box. On the other hand, he said in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And so your conscience is mildly useful, but not nearly as useful as the word of God. And what is it possible to have, according to 1 Timothy 4? A seared conscience, where your conscience quits working because you ignore it long enough. But Moses says, by this word you shall live. Now, what does this mean for discipleship? How can you use Bible? How can you use the word of God to disciple? Discipleship is about theology and applying that theology. And the clearest, most direct and applied theology is found in the New Testament epistles. And so very simply, you can take any text in the New Testament epistle, the letters of Paul or Peter, Jude, and so forth, and you can ask two simple questions. You can do this by yourself. You can do this in a group of guys. You can do it one-on-one -on -one over a cup of coffee. Two simple questions. What theological truths are presented in this verse? And the second question, what are the applications and implications to living that theology, to living that word? What's the theology and how do I live it? That's discipleship. And of course, obviously using resources that help you understand the word of God, those are very useful I am shocked and amazed that the Church of Jesus Christ does so many things labeled discipleship that barely uses the Bible at all. If it's not using the Bible, it's not discipleship. Now, somebody might say, well, one of the elders in the church helped me learn to, to, uh, to, to uh, balance my checkbook. That wasn't using the Bible. Yes, it was. He was showing you how to put in practice the principles of Proverbs. Go back to 2 Timothy 2, if you would. The first focal point of discipleship, and we're going to build on this, for the protection and promotion of the gospel, Bible. If you forget everything else I'm about to say, remember that one. The second focal point, related but different, preaching. Preaching. Paul says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of many witnesses. Now, the scene isn't hard to imagine. And Paul is saying that Timothy is to proclaim the things that he heard Paul preach in public, in front of many. Now, what's the point of this? Why not include any private conversations that Paul and Timothy undoubtedly had many hundreds of those conversations over their couple of decades together in ministry? Why not do that? Why not include those? Well, Paul tells Timothy this for a very specific reason. You remember that Timothy has been sent to Ephesus to be the new sheriff in town. 
He's Paul's representative to clean up the church by rebuking the false teachers, rebuking the elders who had strayed from the purity of Christ, the purity of the gospel, the the sole authority of the word. And Timothy needed authority to do this. And so by focusing only on the things that Paul had preached publicly, and by being able to appeal to the fact that many witnesses had already heard him preach these gospel truths, any of Timothy's opponents would be forced to admit that what Timothy is saying is authoritative. It has apostolic authority. Now, some in the church might say, and undoubtedly did say, because apparently Timothy had some stress over this, who does Timothy think he is? They might say that. It would be far less likely to say, who does the apostle Paul think he is? He administered there for three years with them. Now, translate this to today's church setting. What gives a shepherd the very most authority. It is by speaking the word of God, teaching what the Bible says, and applying that and that only to your lives. When a pastor steps outside the realm of Scripture, you can almost hear the sound of the air being let out of the authority. It's just like this that, that goes on. That happens long enough, people get used to it, and they think is normal, but it's not. Let me illustrate this. During the Sunday service, it's my duty, it's my obligation before the Lord to proclaim the word of God. God has commanded this. The word of God is weighty, it's eternal, it's powerful, it's authoritative. I'm called to obey Titus 2.15. Let no one disregard you. We don't say, gee, I, I really hope that you don't sin. No, we say, the Bible says you shall not do this. But if right after our time of worship, one of you comes up to me and says, who do you think the best auto mechanic in town is? And I give you my opinion. There's no authority in that. I don't know. He might be, he might not be. Now, if you ask me, how should I treat the worst auto mechanic in town? I can show you from scripture how you're to deal with him. I want you to notice something here in regards to discipleship, though. Paul is telling Timothy that authoritative preaching, in his case, apostolic teaching and preaching, Authoritative preaching which proclaims the word and explains the word and applies the word is meant to be a discipleship tool. The preached word is a discipleship tool. How did this happen in ancient times? In ancient times, people took notes and they wrote them down. There were no recording devices, so people were writing quickly. Charles Spurgeon is famous for having many people sprinkled throughout this congregation, all taking notes so that they could come together with a final sermon manuscript. He, he preached from a little bitty card about this big, and then his wonderful, glorious sermons are actually the result of what happened afterwards. So they could be distributed. And through even the sale of those sermons, for a penny each, he funded over 100 new ministries. Spreading the word of God. But I want you to notice here that this is not a a modern idea that sermons get reused. This is an ancient idea. And here at Grace, we're blessed to have, just as an example, David Grant, our newest elder in training. And he faithfully produces week after week a follow-up Bible study based on whatever I preach that Sunday. And we use these in numbers of our small groups, sermon-based small groups. It's a super effective way to extend the life of the preached word, and to nail it more deeply into our hearts and attitudes. But thanks to technology, every one of you can do the same thing. Do you realize that? On our church website, on the Steadfast in the Faith media website, there are almost a thousand sermons that we've done in the past nine years. 
a thousand. There are almost no topics we haven't covered. If you're going to pour into another man's life and you say, oh, I, I just don't feel qualified to do that. I don't feel like I can do that. I, I need another 10 years of, of church. I need another, I need to go to seminary. I need to do this or that. One of the simplest things you can do if you're going to pour into another man's life or if you're going to ask another man to pour into your life, one of the simplest things to do is to pick a sermon series, listen to it together, and talk about it. Listen to it apart. Talk about it after taking notes. However you want to do that. Preaching is ready-made discipleship. In the same way, some of the books we've put out, as well as many other good books that are even in our our own bookstore, They're simply the product of sermon study put in written format. That's all they are. Let me ask you this. If you say, I don't know how to disciple another man, does that mean that that's actually a true statement? It's not a true statement. Because if you say, I don't know how to disciple another man, what you're saying is, I don't know how to push play on a device. So how do you disciple another man? Step one, lift your finger. Step two, push play. And you're discipling. You're listening to the word. You're talking about it. It's generating thought and conversation. You can do it. First focal point of discipleship for the protection and promotion of the gospel, Bible. Second focal point, preaching. Third focal point we'll call faithfulness. Faithfulness. Paul says to entrust this information to faithful men, disciples who want to be disciples, who are trustworthy and won't waste your time. There's two aspects to this. First, the faithful men specifically here are those that Paul expects to teach others also. This could be as specific, as narrow, as intentionally uh, raising up elders in the church. It could be as general as focusing simply on the men that Timothy believes will be disciple makers themselves. So for me, I spend the majority of my smaller size discipleship opportunities for me personally Those are focused on discipling and overseeing those who will or are uh, teaching others. I have a small group of men I meet with who are headed toward the gospel ministry, either vocationally or aiming toward eldership. We met this morning at 630 before even coming in here. I have a small group of boys who are aiming toward the gospel ministry I meet with occasionally. We have staff meetings, which are part of this purpose of discipleship and training. This is a strategic way to duplicate leaders. And by the way, this was the original purpose of our Bible Training Institute, to raise up men who know the Word of God and can pass it on to others. And it's been amazing and glorious to see how God has multiplied the efforts of the Word at Grace Bible Church. When I first came, our original leadership meetings could be held at one of those tiny tables at Starbucks with room to spare. Now we have to meet in the sanctuary with eight eight eight-foot tables put all together so that we can fit the leadership team. That's the work of the word multiplying itself. But there's a second aspect to this as well, faithful men. Not just entrusting this teaching to faithful men, listen carefully, but creating faithful men, turning men into faithful men. This goes for all of us. We can, as men, challenge one another to faithfulness We're built to receive and to respond to challenges. That's how we're built. A couple of Sundays ago, many of you remember, I used a specific phrase as I issued a challenge to everyone in the church. The phrase was, attack sin. Attack it. 
And I challenged you to pick one sin and just forget all your dumb entertainment for the week and attack that sin through the word and through prayer and through conviction and through even the input of those around you. I got a ton of emails in response to that. You know how many of them were from men? All but one. Because men respond to challenges. That's how we're built. And so we're getting into each other's lives to challenge toward faithfulness. What does that mean? Well, basically it means to intentionally and proactively live the Christian life with dependability. Live the Christian life with dependability and then look around for a guy who isn't doing that and help him come alongside you. Now, as you enter into a discipleship relationship and and in the coming months, the men's ministry is going to roll out a couple of ways for you to do that. We're just laying the foundation today. As you enter into a discipleship relationship, that means modeling faithfulness, doesn't it? One of the things I always respected about my mentor, Tom Nelson, and he said beyond time, he lived it. Now, he may have broken the speed limit, limiting it at least that one time, but he lived it. It was important to him. If you say you're going to commit to a short-term discipleship relationship, say three, four, five, six months, please follow through with that. I have lost track of the number of emails or texts or or one-on-one conversations I've had saying that this guy said he was going to disciple me and I haven't heard from him in two months. Don't be that guy. You're going to teach somebody about faithfulness. You model it, don't you? Nothing says discouragement like not keeping your end of the bargain. You can't teach faithfulness if you aren't faithful. Focal points of discipleship, Bible, preaching, faithfulness. Here's a fourth focal point, dependence. Dependence. This is where it gets very real. These faithful men, having been taught, are now those who will be able to teach, who will be able to teach. And we'll get to the dependence part here in a minute. Just to kind of introduce this, there's two facets that we have to consider very briefly. First of all, this idea who will be able to teach can be applied at the level of producing men, again, who teach and preach in the church, whether vocationally or not. The others here who will be able to teach others would represent really the final step in the discipleship process, the step of the wonderful regular church members, which, which encompasses most of you, hearing the word of God, applying the word of God to your lives. But men who will be able to teach can also be speaking of reproducing shepherds. So that's the first facet just to remember or consider. Secondly, just to introduce this, this may also be applied, though, to the regular church member who has come to see that they have a responsibility to disciple. Can I put it to you this way? Some of you, as what I call the blessed regular guys, you can come alongside somebody in a way that I can't. If I, I, I've had this happen more times than I can remember. I'll, I'll be speaking to somebody, and I remember that a few weeks ago they asked me for a certain book. I have it in my office, and I say, can you come with me? I want to talk to you in my office for a minute. I've seen people go like this, like, what happened? But if you as a blessed regular guy say, hey, I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes, there's more of an open door. I have to get through the the barrier of what did I do and how did he find out and that sort of uh, in trouble sort of idea. This is exactly what Paul had in mind in Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. You're able to. 
So that's just a couple of facets to consider. But what I really want to point out in this little phrase, who will be able, is that this defines not only the character of the discipler, listen carefully, but the content of discipleship as well. First of all, it defines the character of the discipler. Who will be able? This is a, a future tense phrase, and it's made up of two words in Greek that we could summarize this way. A future sufficiency yet to be proven. Will be able is a future sufficiency yet to be proven. And what does this have to do with the character of the discipler? This verb in that phrase, will be able, it's in a form that indicates an inward work. It's an inner establishment, an inner determination, an inner enablement that the discipler is to show the character of trusting the Lord for a sufficiency yet to be proven. It is a fearful and awesome thing to have a man sit across from you and say, my life is a mess. Can you help me with the Bible? You have a future sufficiency yet to be proven. You trust the Lord to help you In other words, to be a disciple maker, it involves exercising trust in the Lord for a sufficiency that God will prove to be faithful. This is true at any level of discipleship. Just for example, I'm most familiar with this, a vocational pastor. It is one thing to say, I'm going to be a pastor. It is quite another thing to look at a room full of people and recall Hebrews 13, 17 and remember that you're now one of those, quote, keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. In my estimation, it will take about 1,500 years in heaven for the Lord to correct all my mistakes in sermons. I I figure it's going to take quite a while. So I'm trying to minimize that as much as possible. There is a a huge accounting. There is to be in shepherding the discipleship a, a position of helplessness, a position of insufficiency. Charles Spurgeon is famous for ascending 15 steps to his pulpit and saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit on every step. We only have two steps now. I'm looking forward to the new building. We get a couple of more, so my prayers will be longer. But there is an insufficiency. There's to be a helplessness. That's the character of the disciple maker. But this isn't just speaking of the character. This is speaking also of the content of discipleship. And this is huge. The content, who will be able, a a future sufficiency yet to be proven, that even as the discipler is relying on the Lord's help and discipling others by faith, the content of discipleship includes leading and shepherding the disciple toward trusting the Lord instead of leaning on self. How are you trusting in the Lord in this? How are you going to stop being anxious? How are you leaning on the word of God? What five verses are you digging into to help you trust the Lord? How is your level of peace? If you're not sleeping at night, why is that? Psalm 4 verse 8 says, I will lie down to sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Discipleship is taking a brother by the hand and saying, like you feel my hand here, God's hand is on you and will never let you go. Trust him. Don't get to the end of your life going, shoot, I worried my whole way through. Get to the end of your life going, this was great, and now it's going to get better. Don't go through every trial worrying like crazy. Don't respond like little girls to everything. Just trust the Lord. That's what you're doing with a discipleship relationship. 
shepherding someone toward learning to wait on the Lord when circumstances hurt so bad you don't think you can wait another day. Learning to trust and really believe the sovereignty of God all the way to the point that it leads to a good night's sleep. Learning to rely on truth instead of lies that we tell ourselves, identifying lies and, and, and shoving them aside with truth. How about this one? Teaching someone and learning together to stop seeing solving problems as a goal and start seeing walking through the problem in the manner that pleases the Lord as a goal. Do you realize you could solve all of your problems right now if you quit trying to solve your problems? They're all done. Because you know where all of your suffering occurs? I can tell you geographically where all of your suffering occurs, right between your ears. That's it. That's the only place suffering occurs. And so you're discipling with the content of trust the Lord. And yes, the occasional, and you've been walking with Christ for 10 years and you're scared to death about an electric bill. You realize God invented all the molecules that make up electricity? And he's your father. This is what it means to grow in the Lord, to trust the Lord when circumstances don't give you evidence of his working. You don't need evidence from circumstances. You just need the word of God. That's what trust is. What what is living by faith? You know this verse, Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not what? Seen. The simple question to a disciple or to a small group or just someone that you're just meeting with to hold each other accountable, to walk by faith. Here's a simple question. In what ways is the Lord asking you to trust him right now while you don't have answers? And then apply truth. Here's some truths. Like Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad comes? Okay, so you've got a bad thing happening. According to Lamentations 3.38, who brought that? Well, God did. Are you questioning God? No. Isaiah 42.7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the, from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. You've been brought out of the darkness into the light by faith. Amos 3, 6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The Christians who freaked out over COVID don't get this. Who caused COVID? God did. That's a really simple answer. Say amen and go to sleep. Well, what if I get COVID? I don't know. What if you don't? Who cares? Psalm 139 Your days have been numbered before the foundation of the world. So COVID might be the way. It might be food poisoning. I'm a little bit clumsy, so I'm not going to help the Lord out any in this. I'm not going to the Grand Canyon when I'm older because I I know I don't want my last words, as has been famously said, to be, ah, I don't want that. (laughs) But if it's my day, it's my day. You trust the Lord. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph tells his brothers, For you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. That is a belief in the sovereignty of God, using bad things to do something that is actually good. Romans 8, 28, you're most familiar with this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who called according to his purpose. How about this one? Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So your focal point is dependence. 
sure, you can meet together and, and talk theology. There's other ways to, to do that, but one of the most useful ways to be in the mentoring relationship or even just, just together, it doesn't matter who's a mentor or mentee, whatever, is simply to say, in what ways is the Lord asking you to trust him, though your circumstances would say otherwise? And apply truth. One more focal point. Bible, preaching, faithfulness, dependence, fifth focal point, others. Others. The whole goal of the family tree of discipleship, this spiritual generation tracking those who will be able to teach others also. This is the basic orientation. This is the position. This is the emphasis. This is the focus of the Christian life. And I'm going to rattle these off quickly. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition. Romans 12, 10, love one another. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 14, 13, do not pass judgment on one another, but decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Romans 15, 5, live in harmony with one another. Discipleship and speaking into each other's lives, just the fact that you're here says you believe me on this. Speaking into each other's lives is the way God built us to grow and to mature in our obedience and softness toward him. So it's part and parcel of the Christian life. This is how we form Christ-likeness in one another. Christ-likeness is not meant to be a solo act that you're trying all by yourself to accomplish. We do this together, sharpening each other. Now, my actual whole point of this message and I've shown you from 2 Timothy 1, which is the context of 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, is that discipleship is about protecting and promoting the gospel. And you might be wondering what the connection is. How can my being discipled at some level or discipling another or, or us holding each other accountable, how does that help the gospel cause? How does that help the cause of the gospel? All right. Now we can finally get to the point. Turn to Ephesians 4 for me, just for a moment. Again, super familiar passage, but the great thing about the Word of God is you can't ever return to a passage too often. In Ephesians 4, we're given the basic blueprint of what the church is to be about, and it contains in it a progression, a maturing, a deepening, a, a pathway, a road, a story. I'm just going to do a very quick flyover of this progression in terms of the development of a local church. And then we're going to put 2 Timothy 2.2 and Ephesians 4 together and see how they're the same. I'm just going to do this in terms of steps. Step one, Bible teaching shepherds. Bible teaching shepherds. Chapter 4, verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. What does this imply? The the apostles, a unique group of 12 men plus Paul, no one succeeded them. There are no more apostles. The prophets, the local church preachers who not only explained the word of God already given in the Old Testament, but received revelation uh, for the church prior to the completion of the New Testament. The evangelists, men specially gifted to take the gospel to places it had never been heard before, church planters, and the shepherds and teachers. The church ought to have Teachers who are not pastors, but they should never have a pastor who's not a teacher. So what does this imply? That, that the pastor, the, the teachers are giving content, and this content is the word alone. And there should be great nourishment happening in the local church. There should be feasting beginning in the pulpit 
and flowing down to every ministry in the church. Sometimes I get asked, why do you preach so long? Nobody can remember all that. I don't want you to remember all that. I want you to remember the part that God pierces your heart with. So I, I'm not here to present McDonald's. We're here to present a buffet. And so what should be the result? Step two, ministry working members. That's the result, ministry working members. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The members who are learning the word of God are not merely getting some emotional nudge or a contemplative notion. They're learning at a high level such that the word of God sifts everything in their lives and in their thoughts. And they're being built up in their souls. You're being strengthened. Faith is a muscle and you're, you're working it out through the word. You're growing in your walks with Christ so, that, so as to be able to encourage others. This is a church now that's headed toward health, headed toward strength. When the members are beginning to come alongside one another, equipped for the work of the ministry. Step three, we'll call Christ-centered unity. Christ-centered unity until we all attain, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If the word of God is being proclaimed by the Bible teaching shepherds and the members are being equipped as the ministry working members, this can only mean one thing. Christ is being proclaimed as a central feature of the preached word and Christ is exalted just as the Father wanted and just as the Spirit wanted. Yes, we are absolutely Trinitarian, but the desire of the Trinity is the exaltation of Christ as the head of the church. And notice what is unity based in? It is based not in the lowest common denominator of let's just all love Jesus. It's based in the highest common denominator of the faith. In sound teaching and doctrine, which is the result of sound teaching. We're not going for the lowest common denominator. We're going for the highest. Christ and salvation. And then this progression continues. Step four we'll call steady-minded faith. Steady-minded faith. What do you have when you have, uh, you have the shepherds who are teaching? You have ministry working members. You have Christ-centered unity. What begins to happen? Verse 14, steady-minded faith, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The result of Bible teaching shepherds and the learning attitudes of the growing members and the church is that doctrinal questions are answered. There's a solidity. There's a steady-mindedness of faith. You're not taken away by every new so-called Christian fad and newest spiritual shortcut, the newest book that is the way to know God. No, the roots of your theology have dug deeply into the ground of the Word, so you're not blown over easily. At the Why the Wait conference a few weeks ago, Daryl Harrison gave a terrific illustration. And that was the danger of the seeker-sensitive movement, which is now pushing five decades old and is now not a movement anymore. It's just American evangelicalism at this point. But he explained that because there is zero emphasis on sound doctrine, on the Bible being explained in detail and shaping the minds of listeners to conform to Christ and digging those roots deeply, that when critical race theory started trying to invade the church, countless churches just opened their doors and said, Welcome. They were blown over because they had no spiritual roots. And there's a fifth step, member-involved discipleship. This is starting to sound like 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. 
Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now in the church, your sanctification, your growth, your maturity in Christ's likeness isn't just originating from the preached word on Sunday. But it's coming from your small groups. It's coming from mutual accountability from one another. It's coming from informal conversations that gravitate toward Christ and toward obedience. And, and yes, it comes even from gentle confrontation to one another when you see a brother in sin. Now the church is starting to sharpen itself. That's exciting. That is exactly the progression of 2 Timothy 2.2. Bible teaching shepherds, ministry working members, Christ-centered unity, steady-minded faith, ministry-involved discipleship, or member-involved discipleship, rather. This is 2 Timothy 2.2 in action. And once again, you may still be asking, how can my being discipled to some level or discipling another, holding each other accountable, help the gospel cause? You still have not answered that question. There's one more step. And we'll call this one gospel-ready believers. Gospel-ready believers. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is a picture of the body of Christ through the first five steps Working as it ought to, and then what's the result? The church builds itself up in love. This is not talking about the internal sanctification, the work of the Spirit in your lives being spiritually built up. That's already happened in verse 12. That's normal in the church. That's not the result. That's the normal workings. The church is already being built up spiritually. That's the, that's the regular course of events. No, here, the church is very simply being built up with new believers, because the members are being equipped and solidified and sanctified and now sanctifying one another, sharpening each other and teaching one another. And so what's the natural outflow? The church builds itself up in love. What did Jesus say in John 13? That all men will know that you are my disciples because of the love you have for one another. Listen, there are entire organizations, books, philosophies, gurus, Dedicated to the concept of church growth, of getting more people in the door. But Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 gives us all we need to know. It takes plowing spiritual soil, reaping the harvest of growing and maturing saints. The whole emphasis in the church growth movement is speed and efficiency to get as many people in the door as fast as possible. Let me give you an example. One of the countless church growth organizations suggests the following strategies to grow the church. I'll just give you seven of them. Number one, create a mission statement that makes church growth your priority. Why do you have to create that statement? Because you can't find it in the Bible, so you have to find it somewhere else. Number two, cut out programs in the church that distract from that strategy. Things like expository preaching and discipleship and counseling. Number three, volunteer to you do yard work in a particular neighborhood. I don't even know how they got to that. Number four, serve free coffee at bus stops. Number five, identify the demographic you are targeting. Then design the whole church around this demographic, your music, your decor in the church building, etc. Number six, practice sound business and marketing principles. And number seven, cater your building to the demographic your church wants to grow. Apparently, our demographic is cruddy-looking old white buildings on White Lane. 
One Colorado church said, we want our church, quote, to look like a cross between Cabela's and Big Bass Pro Shop. Because so many people will be in heaven because of that. One thing completely left out, and this was a long, long, is a book chapter. Christ and the gospel, neither were mentioned once. Here are the steps prescribed by the Holy Spirit to grow the church. Bible teaching shepherds, ministry working members, Christ-centered unity, steady-minded faith, member-involved discipleship. Those are five steps. Steps one through five may take years and years and years. And then step six, in God's timing, begins to bear fruit, gospel-ready believers. I don't know where I got it. I think I was still considering the gospel ministry. I've, I've had it for a long time. Somebody gave it to me, but it's a book I still cherish. I don't agree with everything in it, but I've never read a book except the Bible I agree with everything in, so it doesn't matter. But it was a book that had answered the burning question I had in my mind about pastoring. The question was, how am I supposed to do it? How am I supposed to do it? This book was given to me the same month that Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Church came out. I read The Purpose Driven Church. It's pretty good. It's interesting. Somebody gave me this book. It had one statement which cemented in my mind what I was supposed to do, a statement firmly grounded in Scripture. The name of the book is The Disciple-Making Pastor by Bill Hull. And the statement, I'm not quoting verbatim, but this is it approximately, is that the shepherds of Christ's church are not called to just make disciples. They are called to make disciple-makers. Book closed. I knew what I was supposed to do. And what, what did he quote? 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. And so you are disciple-makers. As I quoted a, a pastor earlier, there's no excuse. Every one of you are at some level for the protection and promotion of the gospel. Here are your focal points. If you say, I don't know how to disciple, Bible, preaching, faithfulness, dependence, others. You're men. You can remember five whole words. We can do this. Say it with me. Bible, preaching, faithfulness, dependence, others. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. 2 Timothy 2.2, short, brief, to the point, clear as crystal water. Lord, I look at these dear, precious brothers in Christ, and I pray, Lord, that every one of them would have a gospel influence, whether it's seen or unseen, and that by abiding by Ephesians 4, 11 through 15, we would see verse 16 come about. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thank you for these men. Give them a determination, Lord, to take the time, the effort that it takes to look around and see a need and meet a need. Or if they have a need, to find a man and say, I need help. I need, I need some time. I need you to speak the word of God into my life. Let them do this organically, Lord, and even as we roll out some things in the coming months to maybe help a little organizationally, I pray that it would just happen naturally first and that these men would seek to pour themselves into one another's lives. Help us not to be men who isolate ourselves. Lord, Proverbs 18 says that the one who isolates himself seeks his own desire. Help us not to be those men. We praise you and thank you for the gospel of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that tomorrow is the Lord's day and we get to celebrate Christ 
all together as an entire body. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.